I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Arcade Fire is the little band from Montreal that made a big noise at this year's Grammys. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Indie Rockers Arcade Fire performed live in our studio and will review the new album from experimental trio Battles. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is supported by Maker's Mark Handcrafted Bourbon. More online at facebook.com slash makersmark. Maker's Mark. It is what it isn't. Maker's Mark Bourbon Whiskey distilled in Loretto, Kentucky, reminds listeners to drink responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news. Down in the Mexicali, there's a crazy cat named Joe He wears a red bandana Plays a blues piano In a honky-tonk Down in Mexico that was Down in Mexico from the Coasters, one of the great R&B groups of the 1950s and 60s, in honor of Carl Gardner, the lead singer and founder of that group, who died June 12th in Florida at the age of 83. We've heard a lot about the great songwriting team of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. They wrote hits for many artists, Elvis Presley, The Drifters, Benny King, Dion. But they have consistently said through the years, Jim, that their favorite group to work with was the Coasters. And in a lot of ways, Lieber and Stoller and the Coasters were joined at the hip from the very beginning. Started out as an R&B group called The Robins that Gardner was in. And they had a number of hits, including Riot and Cell Block Number 9. Morphed into the Coasters with Gardner, one of the key holdovers in that group. He was the lead vocalist on many of their songs. But the key with the Coasters is... It wasn't just Gardner, it was, it was about the other vocalists in the group as well, this almost playlet type of approach they had to songwriting with Lieber and Stoller, where they would use the voices as characters in these mini two- and three-minute teen dramas that really changed the face of rock and roll, doo-wop, R&B, and influenced numerous bands for decades on. There was a social and political undertow to a lot of these recordings. When we think about songs addressing racism, getting into trouble with the law, ending up on the wrong side of town, just like that song we just heard down in Mexico, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm on the wrong side of the border here, and I'm getting in some trouble. But there was also an incredible amount of humor in these songs. These guys apparently were just a joy to work with, according to Lieber and Stoller. Gardner was at the head of it. Songs like Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, Poison Ivy, and the song I'm going to play here, Young Blood, one of their greatest hits. Here are the coasters with the late Carl Gardner on lead vocals on Sound Opinions. I saw her standing on the corner A yellow ribbon in her hair I couldn't keep myself from shouting Look there Look there <laughs> Look there Look there Younger Younger Tell me 
Coasters with Young Blood on Sound Opinions. Fact is, Greg, I think if you could be a member of any band in rock history, the Coasters would be high on your list. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The great Carl Gardner, dead at the age of 83. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song The Suburbs by our guest this week, Arcade Fire. Out of Montreal, debuted with Merge Records in 2004 with a record called Funeral. It became an instant sensation in the indie world. A little thing called the internet tends to spread the word about new bands that are <laughs> semi-good very fast. Arcade Fire really benefited from that. But the thing is, they had the goods to back it up. Their live shows were phenomenal almost from the start. They followed it up with uh, Neon Bible in 2007, and that debuted at number two on the Billboard chart, a major achievement for an indie band. So the next year, they were primed for some sort of mainstream success, and The Suburbs was the record that really broke them through. They were awarded Grammy Album of the Year, beating out Eminem in a huge upset earlier this year. They also opened a, you know giant stadium shows for, for bands like U2, They have been touring arenas themselves, arising from the lowest of the club level to arena status within a number of years. It might be surprising, Jim, but it's fitting if you think about Arcade Fire's epic anthems, because they've always seemed to be pointing in that direction from the start of their career. Now, the band consists of the husband and wife team of Wynn Butler and Regine Chassain, but they've also got Wynn's brother, Will Butler, as well as Richard Perry, Tim Kingsbury, Marika Shaw, Jeremy Gara, and Sarah Neufeld. They all sat down with us to perform in our studio recently, and Will and Richard told us about their whirlwind year and surprising Grammy win. Was it as shocking to you as it appeared to be to a lot of people watching the show at the time? It was a shock. It was shock and awing. <laughs> you win this thing, a lot of people are thinking... This was impossible to have happened this year. We've got Eminem, Lady Gaga, all these huge pop performers, and then there's a little old band from Montreal from an independent label out of North Carolina wins this big award. Has it had any effect in terms of what you're seeing with your audience on the road? Has it changed your audience in any way? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. We sort of had 
because of how things work in touring the world world we sort of had everything locked into place of what we were about to do anyway so we kind of booked all of our shows and mm-hmm. mostly tickets were on sale for said shows and things like that so it was kind of like we're already we're, we're still playing the shows that we were already going to be playing for the next whole bunch of months i think there's been a bigger change in kind of the ethereal world of radio and news and and world opinion and stuff like that but yeah. there hasn't been a lot of concrete change in our daily lives you guys still are far from household words uh you you were here all day recording will so you probably haven't seen this but salon has an article they put up this afternoon Cubs fans still have no idea what an arcade fire is. <laughs> have you seen this yet? I have not seen it. So, what is it? Yesterday you Pro- went <laughs> prompting uh, yet another Saturday. Who the f is arcade fire? <laughs> yes, it is the late, There was and who the f is arcade fire? You're absolutely right, Richard. Uh, website. And there was a Twitter campaign. Who are these boobs? Who and now won there's the a new one for sports fans. Now there's a new one for sports because <laughs> you were invited to sing at Wrigley, yeah. right? And you went, and everybody was left, according to this salon article, scratching their heads. And you know, <laughs> who was that nobody singing at Wrigley? <laughs> Did they really? Did they really say that about the guy who sings "Take Me Out to the Ball Game"? Really use the N word. Well, we'll spend some time in Chicago, so you're probably familiar with the tradition. But the seventh inning stretch at Wrigley Field, the Cubs ballpark, is a huge tradition since the day of Harry Carey. They've had these notables: uh, Mike Ditka sang it, Ozzy Osbourne sang it, Eddie Vedder sang it, sort of sang it, sort of sang it. <laughs> some, yeah. some good, some not so good, but it's a huge honor. They can't stop and Vedder from singing it. He tries to get in every week. That's right. And so Will mm-hmm. and Marika from Arcade Fire sang it the other day. Yeah, and it was beautiful. All right, Cubs fans. Let me hear it. A one, a two, a three. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back for it. So, so you say things haven't changed all that much. On the other hand, you know, three years ago, nobody was asking you to sing at Wrigley. That is true. <laughs> no, that that was different. That was really fun. I mean, this is the biggest tour you've done. Two nights in Madison Square Garden. In, in Chicago, you've played the UIC Pavilion, which is a, a small arena, right? 8,500, and they sold out all three nights. Uh, the promoter tells me you guys could have sold out five nights, which is about 42, 43,000 tickets. Not bad for Chicago. Yeah, not bad. Thanks, Chicago. When we had you here last time, Will, you know, you and Regine were saying our goal was to play club shows, you know, to play for people. It would be great if people came. Has there been tensions in getting so big? Because, you know, you play an arena like that. I always say that, like, when you can't see who's sitting in the last row, Mm -hmm. there's a strangeness there. It takes it out of the realm of what you grew up with, the indie rock that you grew up loving. Yeah, but, I mean, 8,500, that's such a cute arena size, though. <laughs> it's, it's a mini arena. It's like a teacup. But Madison Square Garden is, you know, where Led Zeppelin played and Song Remains the Same. I mean, yeah. that's as big as it gets. I think also, even though by all reasonable standards, the popularity growth of this band has been absurd and absurdly quick, it still has been incremental. Like, it still has been step by step. And when we played the Madison Square Garden show, I think we were all kind of amazed that, oh, that felt cozy like that felt like we were hanging around in the room with all of the people and kind of singing together and it didn't feel cavernous and alienating and strange and like where am i which i think it did, it did take us a while to get there the first, the first there, few yeah. arenas we played were like okay this is 
alienating. But by the start of this campaign, somehow we just, they just kind of became other rooms. I mean, we love to play smaller rooms and we love to play for smaller crowds and we love to play everywhere. But, but at this point, the big shows don't really phase us. Yeah. interesting that you know the band had done some woodshedding obviously in montreal in the early 2000s you guys were playing at the club level for a number of years funeral comes out in 2004 it gets big fairly quickly for an independent release and i remember you guys playing i believe coachella the following spring after Mm -hmm. that album got released which is a huge and i remember a lot of people showing up at that gig Kind of with the the arms folded look on their you know, <laughs> you know the the skeptics coming out and saying you know I can check these guys out. I keep hearing a lot about them. Are they any good? It wasn't who the f is Arcade Fire. It was why the f. Why why yeah. are they playing here? Why do they have this prime slot in, at, at Coachella? <laughs> and and you guys did really well. It was a it was a tremendous performance. Was it daunting making that leap because it, it seemed fairly quick where you were getting in front of a lot of people quickly and pulling it off. I mean, did it surprise you at that, all? That particular moment was daunting. Coachella? Yeah. But that one was so out of the blue and yeah. so many people that it was kind of fun. It, it was, was super fun. but ener- it was Energizing. It was like backstage, like kind of walking up the ramp to the stage being like, whoa, that was this a sea is going to be that crazy. Was, I literally couldn't see the end of the crowd. Yeah. That yeah. was yeah. monumental. Yeah. It was, and it was sunset in the desert. It was, yeah. it was crazy. And that was the first of those moments where you're yeah. just like, oh my goodness, <laughs> look at yeah. all these people. And what did we get ourselves and, into? And if you go back and watch the tape, it's pretty ragtag. It's, it's very really, ragtag. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you guys went all out. And I think uh, one of the things that endeared you to the fans to this day, you, you talk about your typical band hierarchy, especially in a large band such as your own where it's usually kind of the front guy and, and maybe one or two sidekicks and everybody else is kind of in the shadows. On stage at Coachella and, and ever since, it seems like there's these seven, eight people on stage having the time of their lives and they're all having a ball up there and they're all equally invested in this. Mm-hmm. Was that sort of in place from the start with the band where it was kind of everybody's job to sort of be a front man at, at a certain point during the show and you know feel like they were inv- as invested in the music as, as anybody else? Richard, I mean, how did you feel when you got into this band there was sort of yeah there, there was never really a time where it was like oh we need a this player and a this player like let's find a this player and a this player to add to the ranks i don't know if you've noticed but richard is six foot five and has flaming red hair <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> he's not really a side man no matter if he's standing still stands right. out in a crowd but also like the way in which we came together and started making music was not oh, a like looking for bass player. yeah it wasn't like yeah. the band searches bass player it was like we would just hang out together and it was like I would end up playing such and such instrument. Someone else would, we would just like switch around all the time. It was just like, we were just doing it. And I think by nature of that, that everyone's switching up all the time. And, and also it being a band of people who could really all have their own bands if they so desired. Like it's really a, a band leaders band or something yeah. in that sense. It's a lot of people who could be producers or band leaders or 
composers or songwriters in their own right but that have chosen to all be in a band together so it's while it's a lot of cooks in the kitchen it also creates a power in numbers thing that isn't just people in the shadows behind a singer do you think people are getting that is that a source of frustration at all i mean because you know win is uh, everybody wants to talk to win everybody wants to talk about win yeah on on this record we actually made the decision it was like well if someone wants to do a magazine cover with just win that's fine Mm -hmm. not that like people are like jumping to do magazine covers with us we were like oh you know what like I'm actually at the point where we're kind of strong enough as a band that it doesn't mm. really matter. And also this band in particular, I think nobody is really chomping at the bit to be like the <laughs> most exposed face mm-hmm. or like to be in like, you know, to participate in the kind of image based celebrity culture or whatever that can often go along with all things rock and roll and derivatives thereof. And I, so I think, I don't know. I, I, once you realize that that is not the point, which I think we realized pretty early on, it gets, you know, those tensions get quickly dispelled. Cause you're like, ah, I don't really want to be on the cover of blankety blank yeah. magazine. And, you know? and most, most interviews aren't this fun to do. Yeah. <laughs> most, <laughs> most interviews are like, ha, 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 you have to go do an interview. All right, I'm going yeah. to have lunch with my wife. <laughs> so you're in have a band fun. with your brother. What's that like? Yeah. like well, this is, I think, I think this is the, uh, the fascinating uh, thing about where the band is right now. You know, y- you toured with U2. You look at U2. I remember seeing U2 the first time they came to America. I was a kid, right? They always clearly wanted to be an arena band. Your music, <laughs> while it can be anthemic and it can fill those places, there's something really intimate, you know, when when Wynn is singing about, about I want to have a daughter. I want to hold her hand and show her something beautiful before it disappears. I mean, that's something you would tell your wife, you know, or your loved one. The fact that there's so much intimacy and yet the sound is so big is an interesting uh, juxtaposition. That's probably why we don't sell as many records as you two. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, a performance from the entire Arcade Fire. And later on, Greg and I will review the new album from avant-garde rockers, Battles. Girls in the knee, by the knee 
much chance for survival The neon bubble is right Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and you just heard a little bit of Neon Bible, the title track from the 2007 album by our guest this week, Arcade Fire. The band's known for its big, rousing stage shows and high-concept albums, but uh, Neon Bible was a little bit more of a modest effort by their standards, especially when compared to their 2004 debut, Funeral, and it kind of threw fans for a loop. So it was still a big success sales-wise, but I wanted to ask band members Will Butler and Richard Perry about confounding fan expectations. Some of your fans were a little let down. They, it wasn't like the big anthems anymore. We're not dancing anymore. We're kind of like in this kind of very dark place. It's a record I happen to prefer at a funeral, but not many people, you know, were in the same bed. I thought it was way more personal, way more, and addressed the times that you guys were living in. My question to you is this. After you make that record and, and saw the reception it got, and it wasn't as over the top as Funeral was, any effect on the way you approached the next project? Like, okay, we need to change this or that, or is it like, I'll show them. To be honest, I think there's so much internal pressure on ourselves to make the music great and to make the songs great and the albums great that any external pressure that exists, if we even notice it, is like 3% of the total. Mm -hmm. Like it really, truly hasn't impacted us yet. We've never really thought about the outside world. We've Mm -hmm. always just been like, okay, let's make a, a good album. Let's make a good song. Well, and you've kept it in-house. I mean, you've been doing the recordings on your own, paying for them on your own. You're not flying to Jamaica to make the big <laughs> follow-up record. Is that part of, is that what t- is helping? Perhaps. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think if we had a record exec coming in being like, guys, the Neon Bible reviews are very different from Funeral. You got to rethink about, like nobody's yeah. ever, <laughs> nobody's ever walked into a room full of us and told us anything before. Yeah. I mean, we have, yeah, as I said, we have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but we don't have that kind of cooks in the kitchen, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. I mean, is there another band, Greg, that is able to play the size shows that these guys are playing that, you know, are not signed to a label? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is interesting. I guess technically Radiohead is, is yeah. uh, kind of a free agent now. But, but they um, got there with the help of the major label. True. That was uh, the talk of the industry in, insider crowd after Funeral came out and, and Neon Bible was going to, you know, these guys are going to be signing to a major. How come they're not signing to a major? What Don't they want to get to that next level? Is it a little bit of the uh, we showed you by doing it exactly <laughs> the way you wanted to do it as opposed to, you know, having Sony show the way, blaze the trail? I think there's there's a little bit of that, but more as like an afterthought of like, hey, look, we showed you. <laughs> well, it's just there. Everything has strings attached, and it really isn't just not appealing to attach strings to yourself. Yeah, it's like oh, like oh, that's oh, that's a lot of money. That's a really nice idea. Oh, I have to do what? Oh, mm-hmm. for how oh, long? That, that actually sounds like not quite worth the money you're offering, <laughs> particularly <laughs> when it's like we're actually doing totally fine. Yeah, like. I can buy a 2001 Camry. <laughs> 96. It's a 96. It's 96. It's a 96. You don't have to name names, but what was the most ridiculous offer? Well, the, the deal we signed with Universal was pretty outrageous, ultimately, for, for not the U.S., which is basically like, we'll distribute your record, we'll put your record in the stores, and you guys do everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have complete control. We'll just distribute it. It's like, okay. We just, we just ate a lot of wacky dinners with, 
the major labels really we didn't we didn't do a lot of offers it was more just like yeah can you get us a table for 30 on saturday night in la and in like 15 minutes and they're like yeah sure and we'll leave without paying for it <laughs> well so like but not make us eat with you yeah yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> whoops one seat too little also we are lucky to have grown up in the time that we are in in terms of like you could read like the biography of the class and be like, oh, look what they did when they were 20 and look how it did not serve them well until they were 50. We have the benefit of rock and roll history on our time and all its pitfalls. And in 1965, the information wasn't out there. Like you didn't know what it, you know, royalties or publishing or what having a manager meant or how distribution worked or the whole thing. It's like, it's much more clear now because it's like kind of post the whole punk rock thing and post yeah. the DIY thing and yeah. post the first like indie like college music wave or whatever you know yeah. and so we could kind of it's like a lot easier to see the landscape of what has existed and be like what about if we do it this way you and know? The, yeah, yeah and the fact that everyone before us you know built the touring networks in the 80s and the 90s yeah. and built yeah. you know there is there was all this infrastructure for us to take advantage by the time we rolled around it was it's the, also the era of major labels becoming mega major labels like mm -hmm. and you're just like why are they doing this like why are the three <laughs> biggest labels becoming one label yeah. and then breaking up and then getting back together like why is that happening that seems like something i don't really want to be around to be perfectly honest doesn't seem like there's a real specific vision in place whereas like a label like merge like ours they're like listen guys if you sell two thousand records great you're done i remembered the silliest offer which was one of the major labels offered our manager to be president of the label if wow. he would bring us to the label. Yeah, wow. <laughs> which, which turned into the awesome deal that we have. Yeah, but he didn't ever have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! Really? Yeah. So they were going to fire somebody to get you guys on the label, yep. or give them a vanity label. Uh, how about if we introduce a song? What are you? What are you guys going to play for us? I think we're going to play Sprawl Two. Yeah, sounds good. Acoustique.
That is Sprawl 2 from the Arcade Fire playing, uh, it's hard to say strip down, playing acoustically mostly. <laughs> There's a little electronics in there. That is a wonderful song from the suburbs, a concept album. Is, is that fair to call it that, Will? Concept record that is about... not fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's hitting below the belt. <laughs> but it's you and Wynn kind of growing up in this sprawling suburb, of a, 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 a suburb a lot like outside of Houston, Texas. I was talking to Jim before we sat down to talk with you here. And you go, what is the uncoolest thing you could call your album if you're an indie rock hipster band like Hamburger Arcade Fire? Yeah. <laughs> and you call it the suburbs and you go, man, that's just an unappealing subject for a, you know, an indie hipster band, right? <laughs> Talk about that a little bit. I mean, how did that sort of idea arise as, as, as a theme for the album and how was it received by the rest of the band w- w- when this thing was in its uh, conception? I mean, I think part of it's a reaction to so many great albums and great musicians we know just pretending to be other people. Mm. Like, oh, I'm a poor traveling hobo and I write hobo songs. <laughs> like, mm. wait a minute, you were born in the sub- suburbs. And yeah. You were born in the, su-. you know, it was a bit yeah. of just like, let's actually talk about where we're from instead of pretending to be rich or poor or anything. Just like, this is how I grew up. Yeah. Well, well, tell us about Woodlands, uh, Will. I mean, this the is the Woodlands. The Woodlands, it, it, as, as I gather, twenty-eight miles north of Houston, mm-hmm. a, a planned community with no fewer than seven golf courses. Mm-hmm. How do you see what your brother's writing about? How is it reflected in what you experienced growing up with him there? I think growing up there was great, and then both me and both me and Win left when we were fifteen to go to boarding school. So right when. Right when everyone starts to hate where they are, no matter mm. if you grew up in the suburbs or wherever, where, where you're starting to feel a little itchy, we got out of there. Yeah. And so we had, like, from the very moment we realized, like, oh, this place sucks. We were out of there and kind of seeing it from a distance and coming home and actually hearing how our friends talked and what they were into because we were out in New England and then coming back and, you know, everyone would hang out at the mall and things like that. And I was like, mm. oh, so so from the moment our teenage years started, we kind of had this weird distance on the teenage life in the suburbs, which I mm. think informed it a little bit. So it was never stultifying to you because you were out and seeing the world in different ways. Yeah. That's well, great. Let's, uh, what do you say we get another song? Sure. What are you going to play? We're going to play We Used to Wait. All right. I used to write
to wait from Arcade Fire on Sound Opinions. We're sitting here with Will Butler and Richard Perry. That song you guys just played, I used to wait. What a song. In concert, it's a, it's, it's a great moment. And yet you think about, what is that song really saying? I'm, I'm waiting for this next thing to happen to me, and it hasn't happened. I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time walking around in sort of a haze waiting for this next moment. And yet you guys turn it into this really powerful soul song. 
did you guys realize you're sort of working that transformation when the music was being developed? It's weird how sometimes the lyrics matter zero and how yeah. sometimes they really matter. And sometimes when you step back and you listen, you know, for all music, like for Smokey Robinson, for Bob Dylan, like when you sit down and read Bob Dylan lyrics, sometimes you're like, this is so dumb. <laughs> and then, but then you hear it with the music and suddenly it's the most complex thing in the world. And yeah. I think there it's, there is a very mysterious alchemy that it is very much, you're going with the vowel, the emotion that the vowel sound gives to you the first time you heard it. And you're trying to recreate that emotion when you play. I think you really don't know what you're doing a lot of the time until after the fact, you know, and sometimes until way after the fact. And, and sometimes you do. Yeah, I mean, like sometimes. going back in time, like wake up, we made rockier because it was kind of such a sweet song about innocence. And we we're like, oh, let's make it a little more of a rock and roll song. Now that I mean, there's sometimes when you're very conscious of it, but I think on a song like we used to, we used to wait is one of the ones on this album that really was the least effortful. Yeah. I think it was kind it's of very we all synergistic. we all played together and we were playing off each other and it was we were kind of riding it a little bit. I gather there were a lot more songs recorded for the suburbs than actually made the cut. What was the process like making this album? It's what a 17 song, 16 songs, 17 songs. Can't remember. I haven't but, listened to it. But, but when we when we had like 11 done or 90 percent done and we had 15 kind of nebulous we were like we've got a strong core here mm. and we know what th this album could either be melancholy and the infinite sadness mm. or it could be <laughs> 39 minutes long could or it could be this weird middle ground and we were like let's go for the weird middle ground or it could be sandinista <laughs> and no one will ever hear the whole thing ah <laughs> uh, the age of excess that, that ambition seems to be gone, and it, it does bring me to the next question, which is, do you see it too? And and do you feel like sometimes you've kind of restored a sense of maybe like, hey, hey we do kind of want it all. When, when I'm thinking about your audience expanding because of the Grammy win, I'm thinking back to what Kurt Cobain would say when their audience exploded and he goes i don't want all these people i don't like i don't like a lot of our audience yeah now. but then he also said <laughs> the next record i make is going to be a pop record like we're done with the grunge thing <laughs> yeah. and sadly they never got to realize that yeah, but you know he, he also stepped up to it i guess conceptually at some some mm. level but is is there sort of like a cap in your own mind about how big this thing goes or how big you want it to go I think in terms of the music reaching people, we would love for it to reach as many people as it can. I think in the terms of being famous, we don't want to be famous. Yeah, mm -hmm. we kind of want the best of both worlds. Um, and so far, we're we're getting the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. definitely we don't we never or ninety nine point nine percent never do things for the sake of pure publicity. If something doesn't seem like it'll be fun or or it'll help reach kind of a you know, people that we really want to reach or that'll be a really cool thing or a fun thing. We don't do it. Like if it seems unsavory and like it's just empty publicity, we 
pretty much don't do those things. Yeah. Don't we're none of us are like fans of like the red carpet kind of world. Mm. Oh come on! I'm you, just you weren't you weren't you weren't into that at the Grammys when uh, hanging around Puff Daddy. I and... mean, a lot of it is logistic because logistically it means you have to get in a you like have to get to the Grammys at like 11 a.m. and then you have to wait in a weird traffic jam on the other side of the building in some hell Hummer limousine waiting for three hours so you can drive around the building and pull up to it. It's like I am not spending my three hours that way. <laughs> I just want I want one celebrity sighting story from the Grammys. The only celebrity I high fived after we won the Grammy was Jaden Smith. <laughs> Jaden Smith. <laughs> so you had to bend down to do it. Yeah, that was it. That was my only celebrity interaction. I think the the funniest thing was before the celebrities were actually there in the rehearsals. They have like they have all the pictures of all the celebrities who are going to be sitting in their specific seats. Wow. Like Taped to all the chairs For so the that they can do the camera spotting. Yeah. <laughs> that was so great. That was a that that was a fantastic moment and congratulations to to the band and thank you so much for coming in to sound opinions guys yeah our pleasure thank you for having us We've got more Arcade Fire, including video of the band live in our studio at soundopinions.org. And we invite you to share your sound opinions. Call 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I review the latest from Battles. If I was scared, I would. if I was bored, If I was yours, I'm not. All the kids have always known that the emperor wears no clothes. But they bow down to him anyway. It's better than being alone. If I was scared. back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a song called Castle" by the band Battles. No, Greg, it is not more faux Ennio Morricone soundtrack music <laughs> a la the Danger Mouse Rome record we talked about a few weeks ago. Ennio Morricone's uh, in the water again this yeah. year. How about that? Battles' story starts a few years ago when they debuted with an EP 
out of Brooklyn, the uh, center of hipster rock in the universe, then released a fine album called Mirrored, really turned a lot of people's heads. Everybody in the band, Greg, had a pedigree. Tyunde Braxton was well-known as an avant-garde artist working with electronic loops in the New York scene. John Stanier, what a drummer, had come out of Helmet and Tomahawk. Ian Williams, multi-instrumentalist from Don Caballero, and Dave Kanopka, also a multi-instrumentalist from the Chicago band Lynx. They came together, and it was a really interesting merger of electronic dance underground music and hard rock. Some incredible things going on, especially on the part of Braxton, who would take bits and pieces of what was happening on stage from the instrumentalist, as well as his own vocal mutterings, and twist them, turn them inside out, upside down, electronic tomfoolery. Sometimes it sounded like a gang of elves from Mars singing, and sometimes it sounded like Braxton. Braxton's gone for this album. He decided last year to bow out of the group and focus on other projects. The three multi-instrumentalists went forward and also invited some guest vocalists to take his place. Half the album, I'd say, are instrumentals, and half of it have these guest vocalists. Some big names. Gary Newman of uh, Cars fame, you know, synth-pop pioneer, makes a cameo. So does blonde redhead's Kazu Makino, one of the boredoms. And a guy from Chile named Matias Aguayo who sings on this song called Ice Cream. Let's play it. We'll come back and give our review and grade it on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. This is Battles with Ice Cream on Sound Opinions. Ice Cream from the new Battles album called Gloss Drop. 
Jim, there's been a lot of terms. Critics have been applying a lot of terms to this band, Battles. They all sound really dull. Math rock, the new progressive <laughs> rock. You know, I don't want to hear a band that sounds like that. It sounds complicated and dull. It doesn't do this band justice. The key with Battles is, even though they play around with some complicated music, some cerebral ideas, they have a lot of fun with it. It's playful. And the reason is they have these really springy rhythms they have these bright tonalities. They have a sense of play and danceability that is not normally associated with this kind of music. You know, I thought the loss of Braxton was going to be a big blow to this band. It, it kind of came late in the making of this record, and I wondered how it was going to affect it. But they've used the vocals as just another tone and texture on this record. It's just one of the many layers of percussion and rhythm on these tracks. So it's not a huge loss from the standpoint of how this music actually sounds. I think they pulled it off again. I don't think many people thought that they could follow up Mirrored with an almost equally fine album, but I think they've done it with Gloss Drop. It's, it's really good stuff. I'm going to give it a buy. I agree with about half of what you said, Greg. It's a disappointment to anybody who loved that first Battles album, Mirrored. There is nothing as good as Atlas on here. <laughs> That was the standout track that really defined the band, that it was in large part because of Braxton's vocals. I think they could have measured up to that level if they hadn't made the mistake of trying to replace Braxton. About half of the album, maybe two-thirds, is instrumentals, and those are incredible. Those are every bit as good as everything on that first album. But then, you know, the boredom's making noise, and Gary Newman sounds like a robot. Big surprise! That was his <laughs> shtick 25 years ago, right? They don't need those cameo vocals. The only one who really sounds good is Kazu Makino, you know, uh, does the sexy siren song thing on a song called Sweetie and Shag. If it was just the instrumentals, I'd say absolutely buy it. I would even, like, trash the vocals. So I guess hmm. I'm in the middle. I'll give it a burn it. So a burn it for me and a buy it for you on uh, Battles. What do we have on the show? next week. Next week, Jim, we have a conversation with one of the great songwriting teams of all time, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Arcade Fire was recorded by Drew Botker and Adam Yaffe. We have a new intern, Kobe Ashpiss, is joining us. We also have a new member of the team, Annie Minhoff, is joining us, along with our stalwarts, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He's a big fan of Arcade games. He likes skee-ball. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Hi, Adrian and Greg. This is Jen from Chicago. I recently purchased one of your more highly reviewed albums of last year, Best Coast, and I like it. But my main complaint about it is that it reminds me and makes me want to listen to one of my favorite albums of last year, which is I'm Having Fun Now by Jenny and Johnny.
Um, I would say that it's a similar similar to Best Coast in that it's a breezy kind of California record. So if you guys haven't heard it, I think you'd enjoy it, and I think your listeners would enjoy it. Okay, bye now. Hi, this is Scott Carpenter from Austin, New York. Greg and Jim, just wanted to give a big congratulations on your three-part Dylan series, which was great. One thing I knew you were going to gloss over is the early 90s period of Dylan. The cover albums back-to-back in 92, 93, As Good As I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong, which are really easily overlooked. I think you can learn as much about an artist from what he covers and how he covers songs as you do about the originals. If you listen to the song Lone Pilgrim from World Gone Wrong, absolutely gorgeous song the tempest may howl and the land thunder roar and gathering storms may arrive but calm is my feeling at rest is my soul the tears are all into something that let him revitalize his, his career moving into Time Out of Mind. Anyway, those are my two cents and my recommendations for all the Dillinophiles out there. Take it easy. Yes, my name is Paul Savarisi. I'm calling from um, Cary, North Carolina. I was actually calling about the favorite Father's Day songs. I hated my father, so my favorite song is Mike and the Mechanics song about the living years because that reminds me every time I hear it about what I didn't ever get to do with my father. I know that I'm a prisoner to all my father household dear. I know that I'm a hostage to all his hopes and fears. I just wish I could have told him in the living years. Hi, this is Kato Yachten from Oslo in Norway. Just want to say thanks for the Happy Father's Day show. I listened to it earlier today on my way home from the hospital with my wife. There we had just seen the ultrasound picture of our second kid, and I got more than a little misty around the eyes while listening to some of the songs you played. Although it's not a celebration of fatherhood per se, one of my personal favorites in the generations talking to each other genre is Oh Child by New Birth. One of the most important things I do as a father is to explain to my son why he should do so-and-so. Because he needs to overcome the obstacles he faces, but he needs to do it alone. I feel that this song tells that in a beautiful and heartwarming way. Thanks again for the show. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.